This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special five-part podcast series on building a stronger culture of compliance through targeted and effective training sponsored by Diligent. Over this series, we will consider the importance of ongoing communications, the value of targeted training, training third parties, what is effective training, and the role of the board of directors. Now a word about our sponsor, Diligent. This podcast series is presented by Diligent, and Diligent empowers leaders with a holistic view of their organization's governance, risk, compliance, audit, and ESG practices so they can make better decisions faster, no matter what the challenge. Ready for purpose-driven compliance? Diligence equips leaders with the tools they need to build, monitor, and maintain a culture of open, transparent ethics and compliance. Build a stronger culture of compliance by improving cultural openness and training effectiveness so everyone in your organization is ready to make the right choice in any situation. For more information on Diligent and to book a demo, visit diligent.com backslash compliance training. In this concluding part five of this special five-part podcast series, I visit with well-noted board expert David Greenberg on the role of the board in compliance and in compliance training. I know you'll enjoy this concluding episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with our final episode today. I'm thrilled to have with me David Greenberg. David, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Good to be here, Tom. So, David, I really wanted to explore some of the legal obligations and how a board might fulfill some of those obligations. We've had a lot of commentary around Delaware and how they have, uh, if not expanded, certainly continued to utilize the Caremark Doctrine going forward. So I was wondering if we might be able to start with what on the legal obligations from Delaware or either regulatory or other states. Yeah, Tom, I think when you put it all together, there is a strong obligation on boards to exercise reasonable oversight over all potential misconduct and failures of compliance law and policy. Whether you're talking about the Delaware courts, whether you're talking about the federal sentencing guidelines, whether you're talking about the way the Justice Department decides whether or not to indict companies for wrongdoing. It's pretty clear that we're at a point where the question is, should a reasonable board have known and taken steps? Should a reasonable oversight committee, whether it be audit or another committee, should that body have known and should it have done more than it did? And frankly, now we're at a point where the courts are saying, should management have known and exercised more oversight as well? So this is now essentially a question of, as a board, are you overseeing what's going on in a company and should you have done more as a board to make sure that the company's fulfilling its obligation to prevent wrongdoing 
on the company's watch. David, you used the word oversight several times in that answer. Could I ask you to maybe explain the difference between oversight from a board perspective and strategy or execution from a senior management perspective so that people understand really that difference in what the board's role is in oversight? Yeah, the board's role broadly is to set direction, ensure that there are strategies in place and mechanisms in place and controls in place, but leave it to management to execute on that strategy. Boards principally should be asking tough questions and following up on those questions. For example, a board should be asking, is there a strong risk assessment process in place? Are there plans in place to address those risks? Are there sufficient resources devoted to those actions? Are there effective ways for employees to speak up when they see something that they think might be wrong? Does management embrace a whole system of preventing misconduct or is management simply giving lip service to it? And in the end, is the system working in practice when the rubber hits the road? If something goes wrong, a board should be saying, why? We had systems in place, what went wrong? But it's not up to the board to do the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, even year-to-year execution. Boards are not situated that way. They're not, that's not their legal direction. They don't have the resources for that. And it's just not the role. And anyone who comes from management as a background and then goes onto a board has to learn that lesson that the board's job is oversight, not execution. And when I first got on a board, uh, I stumbled a few times. So I know it personally. David, let me ask if I could maybe flip the equation to if you are on a board and you are on boards, what information should a chief compliance officer or the head of sustainability or ESG, what should they bring to you that would help you in your oversight role? I first and foremost want to know what's your strategy and where does it begin and where does it fit in to the overall strategy of a company? I've seen way, way too many programs in my time that are just not integrated into the core of the way a company does business. And anything that is not integrated into the real levers and machinery of the business is not going to be successful. In fact, it's going to be chewed up by the levers and machinery. So in in a certain way, I as a board member start from the proposition of, can you show me, Mr. or Ms. Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer, that what you're trying to accomplish is being built into the DNA of the company. So it's a matter of strategy. It's a matter of culture first. It's a matter of fit into the overall business strategy. And then, only then, is it a matter of what are the programs, actions, resources, and activities in place 
to follow up on that. David, would it be an appro- would it be appropriate for a board of director of an audit committee of a compliance committee if they wanted to take a deep dive into one topic to test it? So maybe look at the gift travel and entertainment spend or some other issue as a way to test in a particular area. Absolutely. I think good oversight involves enough depth to understand the reality of what's going on. And Tom, might I suggest another way of a deep dive? Inevitably, in companies, something does go wrong. And I think successful oversight committees take the time to do a deep dive into what went wrong and why to put accountability on senior management, both for explaining and also for demonstrating what's going to change going forward so that we're not back again doing another deep dive on a similar kind of misconduct. David, would it be appropriate for a senior manager, chief compliance officer, chief legal officer, or other to develop a relationship with the board committee that sort of oversees them? So for instance, if the audit committee oversees compliance or there's a compliance committee, should a chief compliance officer get to know that head so that they can pick up the phone and call if appropriate? Or would you suggest a different approach? No, I 100% endorse what you're saying, and I think it's essential. For compliance to be a part of the DNA of a company and part of the overall business strategy, the chief compliance officer needs to have comfort and relationships with the board, just like the CFO, the general counsel, the head of HR, and the, the heads of operations and operating units. In fact, I put it more strongly. In the absence of that relationship, you are unlikely to get the kind of communication that you need. Imagine that a chief compliance officer needs to report a possible problem in the C-suite. That chief compliance officer who knows the head of the audit committee or compliance committee or governance committee is much more able and comfortable picking up the phone and saying to the chair, Houston, we've got a problem. In the absence of that relationship, I think it's too late. And I think that doesn't happen. By the way, that relationship also needs to be established in executive sessions of the appropriate oversight committee with the chief compliance officer. And I think the relationships need to be built offline as well. If all you do is see a chief compliance officer a couple times a year at a committee meeting, that is not as strong as having sat down with him or her outside of the board to get to know them and to get to know their program better because board agendas and oversight committee agendas are jammed. And the amount of time that you can devote in board meetings and in committees is probably just not enough to get the job done and build the relationship. David, how would you help a company think through the number of committees to have? So for instance, should there, obviously there should be an audit committee, but should there be a compliance committee? Should there be an ESG or sustainability committee? Would you maybe walk us through the pluses and minuses in your mind of both approaches? 
Yeah, let's start with today's reality. Today's reality is a lot of oversight, not all, but a lot, runs through audit committees. I'm a member of the audit committee of my board, and I can tell you the obligations on audit committees are massive and time-consuming. And so anything that is perceived as not absolutely mandatory, in other words, you don't have a legal obligation to do it today, it's hard to make it happen. In that context, even though we've discussed earlier in this podcast the fact that oversight of compliance really is mandatory, it's not as mandatory as some of the, it's not perceived as as mandatory as some of the other things audit committees do. And um, it gets driven too often to bottoms of agendas. So I think the real question is, can a company and a board find the right place with the right expertise and the right time to do the job? Sometimes it's the audit committee. In case of my board, it's the governance committee, which is now the Governance and Risk Assessment Committee. In other cases, there will be a sustainability committee. The problem with separate committees can be that they don't feel as integrated into the overall corporate strategy. And just as I said, if compliance becomes a program, not an integral part of the machinery, that's a problem. It can also be a problem at the board level. So boards have to balance that. One way I've seen boards do that, for example, is some common membership. So I sit on the audit committee and I also chair the governance committee. So that means to the extent that compliance can sometimes cut across both committees, I'm on both and my audit chair often attends my governance committee meetings as well. So we don't lose anything in the middle. It's very much a case by case thing, but the question is, can the board find a committee that has the right people with the right interests with some background and the time to do the job? David Wood, how does a board learn about its obligations or maybe how should a board be trained? Should they look to internal resources such as a CCO, such as a general counsel or other for training, or should a board go outside to receive the training it needs to do the board's oversight duty? Obviously, Tom, it depends, but there are, there's no dearth of resources out there. Every company that has a major law firm will have resources in that firm to help them take a look at things. Yes, the chief compliance officer should relish the opportunity to train the board on its obligations and be able to show them what a big job it is and how he or she can help them get it done. And then there are other outside resources. There are specialist firms in the area that will come in and give you a picture. I I do think it's important for boards to hear from the outside. I believe boards pay really close attention when outsiders with broad experience across many corporations are able to come in and talk specifically and and intelligently about a topic of concern. It gives a board a very good level of confidence if you can talk to someone 
the board perceives to be a world-class expert who's been doing something for years and can give an overview both historically and across the board from a corporate point of view about how something like compliance or sustainability is handled in many different situations and then help them apply that to the individual circumstances of that board and that company. David, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I was wondering if there were any resources you could point our listeners to for any of the topics you've touched on in this podcast. Yeah, I'd say our sponsor here, Diligent, has resources and guides. There was a recent Inside America's Boardroom telecast where I discussed compliance and boards. The big four, the accounting firms, all have resources and guides and analysis Law firms do, specialized compliance firms do. There's an interesting discussion going on by a group of directors and compliance officers sitting together, sponsored by an organization called Tapestry Networks. It's called the, it's called the Culture, Ethics, and Compliance Network, and people could find out about that. But it's really about taking the time to learn and discuss and making these topics a priority, which, as I said, can be a problem given today's board agendas. David, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you have checked out all five episodes of this special five-part podcast series on building a stronger culture of compliance through targeted and effective training, which has been sponsored by Diligent. For more information, go to diligent.com backslash compliance training. This special five-part series has been a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.